0: Welcome back to Season 7, Episode 8 of Your Brain at Work podcast. In this episode, Dr. David Rock meets with our guest Jamie Cloud, and Dr. Ryan Curl to discuss sustainability and how neuroscience can help us cultivate Earth-friendly habits. Observe Earth Day with us by exploring regenerative mindsets and learn actionable ways to make sustainability habitual. I'm Shelby Wilburn, and you're listening to Your Brain at Work from the Neuroleadership Institute. We continue to draw episodes from our weekly Friday webinar series. This week, our show is a conversation between Jamie Cloud, founder and president of the Cloud Institute for Sustainability Education, Dr. David Rock, CEO and co founder of the Neuroleadership Institute, and Dr. Ryan Curl, a researcher at the Neuroleadership Institute. Enjoy get comfortable, stretch, grab some tea, and we are going to get into this topic. But before we do, let's introduce our speakers for today. So... Our first panelist is a longtime neuroscience junkie. He pursued this interest at the University of Buffalo, where he earned his master's in neuroscience, as well as completed his PhD in cognitive psychology at Syracuse University. Now as a team member at NLI, his work focuses on interpreting and translating scientific research into actionable insights for organizations. He uses his expertise in cognitive psychology, specifically in human memory and decision-making, and advanced computational analysis to advise, inform, and support the creation of our scalable solutions. Please welcome researcher here at NLI, Dr. Ryan Curl. Ryan, great to have you.
1: Thank you, Shelby. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, I'm really excited for the conversation we're going to have today. Thank you so much.
0: You're welcome. Our next guest is the founder and president of the Cloud Institute for Sustainability Education in New York City. The Cloud Institute is dedicated to the vital role of education in creating awareness, fostering commitment, and guiding actions towards a healthy, secure, and sustainable future for ourselves and for future generations. A pioneer in the field of education for sustainability, she is an international keynote speaker, thought leader, and educational consultant. She writes and publishes extensively while serving as a leadership advisor and curriculum development Coach to administrators, educators in school districts, governments, and civic organizations, and corporations around the world. Please join me in welcoming the founder and president of the Cloud Institute for Sustainability Education, Jamie Cloud. Jamie, it's so great to have you here today.
2: Thanks, Shelby. I'm happy to be
0: here. <laughs> Thank you. And our leader for today's discussion, an Aussie-turned-New Yorker who coined the term neuroleadership when he co-founded NLI over two decades ago. With a professional doctorate, four successful books under his name, and a multitude of bylines ranging from the Harvard Business Review, the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, and many more, a warm welcome as I pass the virtual mic to co-founder and CEO of the Neuroleadership Institute, Dr. David Rock. Off to you, David.
3: Thanks so much, Shelby. Thanks for the warm welcome. It's great to be here with you. And Jamie, great to have you back. I know we had a a lot of fun talking about your work at the summit and we had a really powerful session, I think, at the event that we're going to get a chance to dig more into. Welcome back. Jamie, before we get in and I'll share slides in a moment, tell me a little bit about Earth Day. (laughs) What's, What's the history of it and happy Earth Day?
2: Yeah, happy Earth Day to you. Earth Day was actually created because in the 60s, many, many environmental disasters were happening. Silent Spring had just been written. The Cayuga River was on fire, oil spills everywhere. And so in 1970, Gaylord Nelson, a junior senator from Wisconsin, decided that this was the day to celebrate the earth and to celebrate our right and our responsibility to a healthy environment. So that's what we're celebrating.
3: Amazing. I didn't know the history of it. You know, we have a Mother's Day, we have a Father's <laughs> Day. I think they put in a Secretary's Day at some point, but I was never clear on Earth Day. That's quite interesting.
2: For me, every day is Earth Day and Mother's Day. Uh, <laughs> especially.
3: Right. <laughs> right, absolutely. Tell me about how we're doing. So if you were to give Earth Day a rating, how are we doing? Give us a, a sense of that.
2: Well, not as well as we could be doing. We are kind of headed in the opposite direction that we actually want to be headed if we want to thrive over time and build that capability to thrive over time as humans. We have a chart in front of us of the last 50, 60 years, and it shows that the GDP, with the gross domestic product, the total amount of economic activity globally just keeps steadily going up and up and up. And that there's an inverse correlation between that index and the genuine progress indicator, which includes environmental health, social health, educational attainment, all the things that when you ask somebody what are the top three things that make their lives worth living, all of those show up in the genuine progress indicator. And so while Mm. economic activity is going up steadily, All the other quality of life indicators are going in the opposite direction. Wow. And it's pretty astounding.
3: So if you're a time traveler trying to go back to the best time in human history, you'd go back to about 1977 is what this is saying. And everything's been kind of downhill since the late 70s.
2: Right. Why have an economy if it doesn't contribute to your quality of life? There's no point in that.
3: And, And tell me a bit more about that indicator so everyone understands. Like what kinds of things are in that and how is it calculated?
2: Yeah. So it's all done in dollar value. So it's what they call the substitution value of healthy children, for example, well-educated people, happiness. There's a lot of work being done on the happiness index. And so some indicators of happiness right. and well-being are in there. Recreation, physical health. Yeah. All yeah. the things that help us get up in the morning.
3: Right. it's trending down pretty right. clearly. Since that time, whereas the GDP is clearly trending up pretty steadily.
2: Exactly. um, And if you look at, I have some other charts with all of, a lot of the different quality of life indicators, the gap between rich and poor and human health, human development. And they all, as that GDP keeps steadily going up, they're all going wacky up and down and all around. And again, they can go up together. They should go up together, but that's not what they're doing at the moment. And of course, environmental health is a part of that as well.
3: As well. Yeah. So happy Earth Day. And Earth says we need to do better. That's the cliff note. And Um, we can do better. We can do better. We're trending down at the moment. We should do better and we can do better. You know, we'll talk in a minute about kind of the right and wrong way to mobilize people to do better. Because I I think clearly what we've been doing hasn't worked. We'll we'll come to that in a minute. But I want to, speaking of history, I want to go back to a little history of our own. At the Institute, and you were at the summit this year. It was actually a 15 year anniversary of the first summit in Asolo in northern Italy. And here you are in 2007. This was the very first summit that we ran in partnership with a university called chimba Dr. Al Ringleb there and I collaborated for many years. We had some fascinating individuals coming along, as well as yourself. We had a physicist, we had Dr. Jeffrey Schwartz, who's an amazing scientist. You're we talking with Robert Coghill, who, who did some research that I still quote all the time showing that essentially there is no such thing as a pain response. It all depends on your expectations. And the right dose of expectations is equal to a clinically active dose of morphine. It's a factual statement that playing with expectations literally alters the pain response. And it was such an interesting body of research. I remember unpacking that. You know, happy 15th year. We're glad to have you back. And you continue to be passionate about things that organizations are starting to kind of have to pay attention to. I think they're being forced a little bit from upward pressure from employees who are saying, you know, if you want me to work here, I need to see that you're aligned with my values. Obviously, it's an incredibly difficult time to hire people and people are voting with their feet more than ever based on company values. So I think there's some really interesting upward pressure and there's also increasing downward pressure. It's been a record year for investment in what you might think of as ethical investment or sustainable investment. So from the investment community, it's been a huge breakout year in the last couple of years really around that. So we're seeing, you know, upward and downward pressure and it's almost like 20 years later, finally, people are paying attention to things that you've been talking about for a very long time. So tell us a little bit about your institute, the Cloud Institute, kind of what do you do and give us the sort of minute or two version of that would be helpful for context for people.
2: So we focus mostly on school systems, because that's where all the children and young people are legally required to be during their most favorable (laughs) time for learning. And we want schools to actually educate for a healthy, sustainable and regenerative future. And in fact, you know, all systems are perfectly designed to get the results they get. This current situation of unsustainability is not the work of ignorant people. It's the work of extremely well-educated people, many of whom have advanced degrees. So we would argue that it is not a lack of education, but the education itself that has unintentionally given us the mindsets of, for an unsustainable future. And so we want to change that because all the children are there. And we think that young people are the secret sauce to making the shift toward a sustainable and regenerative education. So Mm -hmm. that turns into professional learning, curriculum design, leadership development, organizational change, and creating partnerships with the communities in which the schools and districts reside. Because schools and communities learning and working together for the future we want is our unit of change.
3: You're teaching teachers to teach kids about sustainable practices and and, and changing mindsets. How, how many teachers have you taught in your career so far? What's your best guess?
2: Oh, over 200,000 at the moment, wow. globally. We work globally. And now with the virtual <coughs> access, you can access even more people. But for every one teacher you get in public schools, you get 150 kids a day. So that's a lot of young people.
3: 200,000 teachers. Well, thank you for the important work that you're doing out there that is finally starting to get recognized. So I, I appreciate your hard work out there. Let's shift gears a little bit. I want to talk about a framework that we started discussing in the last few years. And at NLI, we have this habit of kind of noticing something interesting and kind of doing a little bit of work on it and then maybe presenting at a summit and then coming back and more research. And, you know, we take time with things. We just released work on empathy that was over three years research. And this is something we've been talking about a couple for more than two years internally, and it actually came from a, from one conversation at the time with Dean Carter, who's the head of people at Patagonia, and he was telling us about kind of this whole way that they were thinking about everything at Patagonia. We did an interview with him, we did a podcast with him, and it just hugely got my attention as because this, this concept just changes your schemas in such a profound way. You kind of it literally changes how you see the world in relation to not just your people practices. In fact, we're making the leap to people practices. It really changes how you see the world in every way, but it kind of needs to be applied to people practices. And the concept is is very simple, is that as humans in dealing with any kind of system, whether it's a company or a farm or a city or a building or a mine or any, any kind of complex system, there are four ways that we can conceptualize how we interact with that. One of those is to essentially exploit the system and exploitive means you basically don't care about the impact you have. you're just trying to get everything possible out of it right and there are still some countries that have exploitative practices to do with you know mining or agriculture, and people get killed, and it's it's awful right so exploitative is you don't care at all. A lot of industry has and sort of systems overall land at the next one up, which is depletive, which is sort of the the really bad things have been regulated out you know you can't harm people anymore but essentially whatever system you're interacting with is worse off every year you know whether it's a mine and every year it's sort of more degraded or a farm every year the soil is worse you're not exploiting it but you're depleting it and most of our systems are in that place including a lot of talent systems people systems hr systems it's like human resources versus something else so the next one up is where a lot of people land which is sustainable practices right and it makes a lot of sense it's really helpful to go from depletive to sustainable. Sustainable means you know neutralizing. You're neutralizing the impact. But there's something further than that. And this is kind of what Dean got us really excited by. And of course you've been thinking talking about this for decades and others have been talking about it for decades. But at Inali we got excited about it. And it's this concept of regenerative practices. And if you sort of take it to say a, a farm, right, exploitative is just to get everything you can out depletive is gets worse every year. Sustainable is you kind of neutralize the effect of farming. But regenerative is every year the farm actually produces a little bit more because it's a little bit healthier. The soil is healthier. The overall biome is healthier. Your employees are healthier. Your finance, it doesn't have to be a huge amount because that wouldn't be sustainable, but you're literally leaving the system better than you found it every year, right? And obviously, you know, hockey stick growth doesn't allow that. It might be more steady growth, but it's a long-term regenerative approach and what's interesting is a lot of natural systems work that way a lot of natural systems actually mimic that you know the, the system constantly gets more biodiverse until something comes along so exploitative depletive, sustainable regenerative just you know on the concept jamie'd love to hear from you ryan as well just kind of fill in the gaps a bit tell us a little bit more about the concept i'll put some visuals up as well but yeah, jamie what do you want to add there
2: well, I was just going to say, I think the thing that people don't realize is that reciprocity is not optional. Whatever you do and whatever you don't do will make a difference, and it will have one of those four outcomes. And so, if you're on the left side there in the exploitative and the depletive mode, there will be unintended consequences that will come back to bite you. <laughs> And if you're moving toward a sustainable and a regenerative future, there will also be feedback and intended and unintended consequences that will come back to support you. And so for our own good, moving to sustainability and regeneration makes the only sense because of that feedback. And the thing that I've learned from the brain science is sometimes you cannot read the feedback. You can't, Your if your mental model or the mental map that you're operating with prevents you from seeing the results of your actions. And so you can't take responsibility for those results. And I right. think that's and I'm gonna let Ryan take it from there, but that is one of the key things that the brain science has done to help us yeah. in educating for this kind of thing.
3: Thanks, Jimmy. Ryan, what about you?
1: Yeah, I think one key point, and to tie this framework into the conversation we had about GDP versus GPI, is that we need to be using the right metrics so that we can identify where we are. If you have the wrong impression of GDP, for example, you might be convinced that you're regenerative or, or sustainable when maybe that's not the case. So I think it's, it's also important to consider you know, how we're, how we're measuring these things as well.
2: Right, because yeah. the GDP measures the good, the bad, and the ugly. It's just total right. amount of activity. It has nothing to do with quality of life.
1: I read just recently about GDP. If you produce and pollute the environment, GDP increases from the production, but it also increases from the cleaning up of that, right? <laughs> so the more mess you make, you know, if you're cleaning it up, your GDP raises. So it is a really biased measure in that way.
3: I'll tell you a little story This kind of anchors on for me. Last August, I finally took a vacation, I tried to travel somewhere, of course, immediately caught COVID and was kind of stuck somewhere. It wasn't anywhere awful. It was somewhere nice, except that I couldn't do anything. I had quite a bad hit of it, even though I was vaccinated, but I... I was like, I can't watch TV. I can't really rest. I so sort of couldn't do anything. Couldn't go outside. Or and the one thing I discovered I could do was actually read. And anytime I go anywhere, I always take books in this like distant hope that I'll actually read. But on this trip, I discovered I could actually read was the only thing I could do for maybe a couple of hours a day tops. And I started reading a book I'd been carrying around for over a year, dying to kind of read. And it was called A Thousand Brains by Jeff Hawkins, who wrote a book called On Intelligence. He actually designed the Palm Pilot and kind of sold that whole business basically so he could get into neuroscience research. And he set up a whole neuroscience research institute, really hardcore research. And and his mission has been to understand the cortex, which is the more kind of human or conscious processing part of the brain, the whole cortex, all of the outer region is the cortex. And he actually developed a theory and it's in this book called A Thousand Brains. And it blew my brain away. And the core message of it is everything is about schemas. Everything is about a map and every single bit of information is held in a complex schema. And you can't study neurons. You can't study the cortex without actually a theory of the schemas. And for me, there's this unconscious schema that we have right going into a talent review meeting, which might be a depleted one that you don't even know you have. Right. But it's unconsciously kind of orienting all your thinking, all your decision, decision-making, all this stuff. And I think, what this framework does it potentially is, is it gets people to kind of be metacognitive and say, okay, which schema do we need, particularly around people? This whole framework is obviously incredibly relevant to the environment, to the built environment, to the way we run companies, to supply chain, what's left of it, to all of that. But we think it's also really relevant to how you manage and develop people. You know, at NLI just this week, I made a big push internally to say, hey, we're, we're really going to do a some significant experiments on ourselves at you know a couple hundred people to understand regenerative practices more we really want to try a lot of things and and I think that the more regenerative you are the more everyone starts to apply those principles around them as well so, so I think there's a real opportunity but let's kind of dig into what it is mm-hmm. a little bit but before we do that just I guess I want to pick your brains Jamie because when I think about earth day when I think about even talking about earth day the first thing that I imagine visually is people rolling their eyes saying, I don't want to hear more about the environment. You've been trying to get people to care to make this kind of thing a priority for over close to 30 years, I understand. You've been trying to get people to care. For all of those out there that are trying to like get their company to care more about ESG, it's called now, or regenerative practices, whatever it is, for all those people trying to get their CEO to care, tell us the things they shouldn't do and some of the things that they should do to make this yeah. a priority. And then we'll talk a little bit about the habits that we, we researched and came up with over the last year or so as well. So what should people do and not do? Around so that?
2: in my experience, people associate the word sustainability or earth or the environment with bad news. So right away, you're going to put people in the away state if that's their association they're making. And so what I do, number one, is to figure out what is it you love? what do you care about? What do you want for your future, for your children's future, your company's future? And then I look to see how we can connect the dots between what they love and what we're calling sustainability and regeneration, because people don't know what they don't know. So we're teaching about something that even we don't know how to do. So that's a really interesting challenge. And so if you help people to say, well, look, what we can probably agree on is we want a healthy future. So how are we going to get from here to there? The thing, again, back to your notion about schema, people don't realize, they assume it's somebody else causing this unsustainability. Once they understand what it is, they have a very difficult time taking responsibility for the difference they make. Only 29% of the people that I've worked with over many, many years that I've surveyed say that it's the environment that's the entry point to sustainability and regeneration. It's because Mm. of the environment. The other 71% have different entry points and we need to know what those entry points are. Health is a big one. The business case is a huge one. The biggest one is the ethical and moral responsibility to future generations. For some reason, people don't connect the dots between what we're doing shooting ourselves in the foot and future generations in the foot They don't connect those dots. They never understood that I meet a lot of educational leaders that didn't realize that humans were actually dependent on the living systems for our lives. They don't understand that environmental health is human health. They don't understand the interdependence and so helping people understand that we're interdependent on one another that people are interdependent on one another and on the living systems upon which all life and all production depends. That is not a well understood concept, strangely. And these people have PhDs. And so that's why I say, you know, they obviously didn't learn it in school, and they didn't pick it up anywhere else. And so they need to be able to connect the dots. And so you don't want to associate any of these terms with bad news, you want to associate it with The future we want with happiness, with health, with well being, with making more money, with all of the things we like to do, with having fun, with good food, that shifts people because that's what they really want.
3: Yeah, it's interesting. One of the things that I know we associated with was being able to adapt quickly. You know, the theme of our summit last year was this year was adapt faster. And I think a system that's really regenerative can deal with external stresses like a storm or a fire if it's a, you know, if if it's land and actually recover faster. And it can adapt faster to changes because the system's communicating you know, internally really richly. It's reading feedback really quickly. So I think more regenerative practices means greater resilience, both physical right. and it's human even, resilience.
2: Right, it's even better than resilience because what you're describing is resilience. Regeneration is leaving the place better than you found it. Resilience is always a good idea because stuff happens right? But it's not necessarily an aspiration. Regeneration is the aspiration. And figuring out what our unique contribution is as humans is another thing that really works for people. Because we're teaching about something and learning about something we don't know how to do, we actually need everyone's participation. Everyone has a unique contribution to make, a niche, if you will. And so we want to make sure they understand what is yours What's your contribution? And make it. My graduate students, when they finally realize it's game on and not game over, they say, well, what can we do? And they're all design students. And I say, well, you're designers. Design something. Do you. You What is it you do? So whatever it is people do, they have a contribution to make and they can start making it.
3: Right. Just go do something. Everyone go do something is a good start
2: because you're having an effect one way or the other, whether you're doing something or not doing something, it has an effect.
3: You're having an effect either way. You know, Erica asked an interesting question uh, earlier, you know, how do you change people's schemas? This is an age old question. And the way not to do it is become like a passionate evangelist, which is ironic because the more you sort of want people to change, the more they sense that you're saying that there's something wrong with how they see the world. They get a status attack. Right. Right the more they feel you trying to change them, they have an auto- autonomy response, That's, they feel right, to exactly. control them, right? So the more kind of you try passionately to advocate for this in some ways, the more they, well, people pull back. The more you make it bad news, the more people kind of shut down, become. there's all these sort of traps to activating this. And what you're saying is you've got to you know, kind of connect to things people already care about. Yes. And then how do you activate this? For me, I mean, this is a central human question people ask all the time. It's, it, it, a lot of it's in stories, that people kind of don't see coming. You know, They don't see the insight coming. You're not talking to them about it, say environmental context. You know, you're know, It's sort of coming tangentially and through a story and then, oh, they see the schema. Because it's really easy to sort of shut out. As soon as we decide someone's in our out group and has competing goals to us, we just hardly process anything they're saying. So we sort of have to stay on the same side of the table as people stay in their in-group and then kind of gently share stories that help people see all these different schemas. And they kind of decide for themselves. Let's dig into that. We're sort of starting to get into what are the habits. And we'll dig into this and we'll hear from Ryan a bit more as well. So, firstly, we want to say that to help a company become more regenerative, there is a bit of a foundation that's necessary. And this is work we've been doing for a long time. You know, organizational growth mindsets work we've been doing for over a decade, diversity, equity, inclusion over seven years, speaking up has been the last few years. Some of you saw the incredible, incredible project that's happened at Boeing around speaking up that's really worth checking out. Maybe my team can put that webinar in the link. But these three things are really important because trying to get people to be regenerative that have a fixed mindset, which is the opposite of a growth mindset, obviously is very, very difficult. You want people to be open-minded is the simplest way to describe it. Lifelong learners. Yeah. Lifelong learners, interest in experimenting and trying things, open to being wrong, all of that. You also have to have everyone on board. You can't have These divisions in companies, you need the sense of inclusion in particular, where everyone feels that they're part of a bigger mission and is pulling together around shared goals. So you really need, you also need obviously really diverse perspectives to come at these these challenges, right? And then you need people to speak up. Can
2: I just interrupt you for a second? When you say you want them to feel like they're a part of it, it's more than a feeling. They are completely interdependent on one another. So they are a part of it. Whether they perceive it or not, that's the thing that we want them to understand.
3: Let's dig into it. So these are kind of the foundations. And then we spend a lot of time with Jamie and other experts and our own scientists trying to work out. So if you were to actually teach this to people and break it into kind of habits one at a time, which we love to do. We think that change requires making something important, a priority, right? Then building real habits one at a time, the way habits get built and then putting in systems that support it all. That's our approach, PHS. So what are the habits? So we came up with three. We we introduced these at the summit. I want to go a little bit deeper into them. The first one we've been kind of talking about, but I, I'll explain this a little bit, and maybe Ryan can add in, and then maybe, Jamie, you can comment kind of as we as we look at all three a bit more as well. The first one is expand your perspective, and you can kind of hear this in the conversations we've been having, but it's actually quite specific. It's expand your perspective over time. So one of the things that Dean from... Patagonia said, Is that, you know, in order to be regenerative, they're thinking across decades to see the impact of things. Like they invested in a school next door to their head office, even though it was really expensive and a huge investment, because they realized that over time they were losing so many parents that would just be out all the time, you know, dealing with their kids and how much more supportive and empowering would it be if there was a school kind of right there for the parents but it took them thinking over decades to see the value of that and now they have two or three generations of people who've literally gone to the school and now come to work there so you've got to expand over time so you're not just thinking about this quarter or even this year you're thinking a lot further out you're also thinking over a lot more distance and also including a lot of other points of view so that's not just other people's point of view, but you're now thinking about the system, right? So you're thinking about all the different kinds of inputs. Now, the trouble with that, to expand your perspective, is you have to have a lot of working memory. You know, you have to be able to hold a lot. And the information has to be coming to you in a way that you don't feel threatened as well. Because as soon (laughs) as you feel threatened, all of that reduces, right? To, To see all these other perspectives and to see over time and to see more distance, these are subtle connections, And threat will really reduce that. But then there's another part of this is that the biases that we always have will really get in the way as well. And maybe Ryan, I'll go to you to kind of bring this alive a bit more, but there are a whole bunch of biases also that really get in the way as we're trying to expand our perspectives. Ryan, do you want to talk us through that a bit?
1: Yeah, I'd love to. And so I'd love to go back to this idea of our schemas or our mental models and how those relate to our biases. So, you know, you have this A mental model is never going to be a perfect representation of your understanding of the world, right? It's the simplified view that allows you to act in the world in a way that's straightforward. And it goes to David's point of working memory capacity. We can only hold so much information and act on so much information. We try to make those those mental models as close to an accurate representation of what we believe the objective reality to be. And we want to minimize the distance between those two things. And so here's where the tricky part is, and I think this is where biases come in, is that there's two ways to kind of minimize that distance. You can extract more information unbiased about the actual world and adjust your mental model to fit that, or you can bias the sorts of information about objective reality that you choose to consider, right? And that's where our biases come into play. So you might say... You know, for example, a very common bias, and here's to another point to make this more palatable, is to understand that we're all susceptible to these things. So we might seek out information that conforms to, you know, what we uh, that confirms what we already believe, right? And so it's not that we're necessarily creating a worldview that's inaccurate, but it's biased. It's it's we're picking certain bits of information at the expense of others. And this is resulting in a maladaptive mental model that we use to function in the world, right? So to realize those things, you know, then we can take the step to kind of unbiasing the way in which we sample from reality to then change our mental model to fit what would end up hopefully being a regenerative business practice or otherwise.
3: Yeah. Thanks. And for
2: that us. takes less energy, right, Ryan? That's why it's so easy to just go with the bias. It's more work to think.
1: Yeah. That that's, correct? Right? These biases play off of each other, right? Well, you know, we'll start picking biased samples of information. Oh, I'm I'm finding information from people who are more similar to me or that I continue to go back to over and over again. So the information never changes. It never updates. Right. So it's easy to get locked into that. I mean, that's a habit in its own right, too. Right. We can get locked right. into the habit of extracting information from the same biased sources as well.
3: Yeah, I think the distance bias is the one that sort of takes the least cognitive load to understand. Here And essentially distance bias, it's one of the biases in the seeds model It's the D and C. So distance bias is, is essentially the way you have a, a network in the brain for detecting how close something is to you. And based on that, it determines its importance, right? So distance bias is like something that's close to you physically is much, much more important than something that's like a mile away right? Never mind, 10 miles away or across the country. Like, so something across the country, let's say a pandemic in China in February, 2020. Yeah. It's nothing that's in China, right? That's a distance bias, right? So it's where your
2: waste goes or your effect on global warming and climate change. Anytime the feedback's removed in time and space and not casually observable, it's very difficult. It's, It's interesting.
3: It's time. So something tomorrow just doesn't matter to us compared to something today and something in like 10 years is just we massively discount its importance to us compared to something now, right? It's time, it's distance, it's also ownership. So if something's not yours, we discount it, where if it's something you're directly connected to. And so so that's probably one of the easiest ones to understand. And what we've got to do to mitigate that is evaluate outcomes and resources as if they're all here and now, and it reduces that bias. Because we literally just kind of don't care intuitively about things that are far away and distant, even though they might be incredibly important to actually care about. And it's just literally right. a distance bias to mitigate. Right.
2: And in the context of interdependence, you have to care about everything that's happening because it's coming back to you yeah. sooner or later or to your children and grandchildren. So you can see everything you two just said explains everything about how we could have gotten this far down the road of unsustainability without really even noticing it.
3: Right. And some it's people still bias. don't perceive it. Yeah. yeah, It's just a distance bias. It just doesn't look important, yeah. right? That's an easy one to understand. Expedience bias is just kind of laziness. It's just doing the surface thinking and just not thinking deeply. So you're not actually thinking about the whole system, right? Because it takes a lot of work to think about the whole system. You're just seeing like the first click down of your effect. You know, I don't seem to have an effect when I do this every day. So it's fine. And then the similarity in experience bias, there's a whole lot to say there. But this first habit, expand your perspective, this becomes a habit that you can actually teach people. And this is why we chose it. We only teach choose habits we can teach. So we, we believe there's a way to systematically at scale, teach people to expand their perspective. And the way to do that is not make them anxious about the environment, but to actually teach them about distance bias, for example, and get people practicing mitigating distance bias, right? Get them practicing that with some safe situations so that this becomes a habit, right? Now you're expanding your perspective or noticing when you have a threat reaction to an issue and how you need to shift that mm-hmm. to a reward response so that you've got more resources. So we think there are specific ways to teach this. And that's our goal is, is to actually you know, develop an approach so that we can help millions of people develop better schemas around this. Right. And, and for context, you know, last year, we directly worked with about 5 million people managers globally. So, and that's starting to scale and really accelerate. So, you know, we hope to be able to teach millions and millions of people managers how to expand their perspective in the next few years and with a lot of, a lot of hard work ahead of us. But so we're, we're working on these habits. So I appreciate any feedback or input from people on have we got these habits right and, and all this. But number one is expand your perspective. Number two gets a little harder and this is challenge your thinking. And a lot of this, this goes back to Erica's questions before about sort of how do you change people's schemas? is, I don't know if you remember the, the movie Inception, really amazing movie. If you ever like really can't sleep, it's a great movie to put you to sleep because it's so complicated and it's all about dreams and you lose the plot and you drift off to sleep, which is ironic because it's sort of what the movie's about in some ways. But what the movie's really about is the power of someone thinking an idea is their own. And this team of people in this movie construct kind of invent this way to plant an idea in someone's dream such that they think it's their own. And it's such a central concept for driving any kind of big change is you need this moment. Now, we've always called it a a moment of insight. It comes in many different names, the same concept. But it's essentially, it's a shifting of schemas where you see the world differently. So we need to get better at this moment at scale. We need to teach managers to teach their people how to have these complete changes in mindsets And it's quite a a tricky thing. Jamie, do you want to comment on that? And then Ryan, any thoughts as well?
2: Yeah, I think that if people just understand that their thinking drives behavior and behavior causes results, and that they should keep their eye on those results, see if they're what they intended. And then if not, circle back and say, okay, I need to change my thinking. Danella Meadows, who was used to run the Sustainability Institute in Vermont, She wrote a piece called the 12 places to intervene in a system and all the different places to make change in a complex system. And she said the most two upstream places were metacognition, thinking about your thinking, and then thinking itself, that those were the two places to intervene if you want systemic change. And you can understand because if thinking drives behavior and behavior causes results, if you don't like the results The quickest way to make change is to change your thinking. But that requires that people attribute the results to something they did or didn't do and to a way of thinking that they have or don't have. And that's the tricky part.
3: Yeah, yeah. So you've got to start with literally open up your mind and then be open to challenging yourself for kind of how you see the world.
2: Right. And Um, take responsibility for the difference you make.
3: Yeah, yeah. And Whether you
2: intended it or not. (laughs)
3: <laughs> right. Well, that's part of challenging thinking. I think doing that at a time where our locus of focus has shrunk because of COVID and you know now other challenges in the world, like our ability to think longer term and over more distance has actually kind of shrunk a bit. So right. we need to push back against that. I know there were times in the last two years, I, I could think a week ahead at the most. I'm sure many of you had that. And it's been delightful lately to be able to plan a month ahead, and then a great reminder that none of those plans have ever worked. Every time I plan a month ahead for the last six months, nothing has actually worked. So really, right now, we're a few weeks ahead, or in my world, I can plan a few weeks ahead at the most. So I think, how do you challenge people's thinking or get folks to be open to challenging their thinking when this world is going on? You know, habit one is sort of a setup to it, and habit two is the real work. Ryan, can we hear from you a little more on this habit as well?
1: Yeah, so it reminds me, you know, we're... (laughs) As we talked about in habit one, that we're kind of wired towards these biases to some degree, and it might take some executive control to overcome these things. But we're also wired to continue doing the things we're rewarded for. So once we break through this one barrier, we can rely on our wiring to continue along these more adaptive habits as well, right? You know, to challenge our thinking and to realize the gains we make from these insights as well. I think that, that's really a, a valuable tool too. So you break through that wall and the same wiring that we broke through at one point, I think helps us get to where we want to be. Uh,
3: right. So we're not pushing
1: back against our nature, I guess is the point I'm trying to make. And Ryan, a
3: question for you, like, you know, how is this one, expand your perspective different to challenge your thinking? I mean, there's some similarities, obviously, but how, how do you see these as different? You worked on this team, putting these together. Tell us more about kind of the differences. Yeah, so I
1: think when you expand your perspective, you're, You know, you're setting in and I think the best way to do that or one of the best ways is to come up with protocols that allow you to access diverse perspectives. Right. So that you're actually being aware of them. But the next step there. So now you have all of these partially connected or or maybe unconnected ideas where you need to see what insights come from that. Right? So that's really challenged your thinking is like, how can I connect these ideas? What comes out of this? What's the product here? What ideas aren't leading us on the right path? What's leading us to this maladaptive mental model that I'm overvaluing certain bits of information like temporary bottom line, you know, short term over the long term? Right? What do I need to get rid of? To then challenge my thinking and to move on to this regenerative.
3: Okay. Let's uh, move on. Just speaking of timing, I want to move on to the third one, and then we can we can kind of talk about them all. Jamie, give us a sec. We'll bring this one together, and then we'll have time to chat more and take some questions. So this third habit, if you're starting, we're kind of opening up and then having insights, and then this third one's really important. And I think, Jamie, you've been kind of wanting to bring this one forward in your conversation that you know you then have to commit to action. And bear in mind, these are habits. Just to remind you, of this a of context. You know, these are habits that we think are teachable and scalable around regenerative practices so the context is you know regenerative practices but once you had to open your mind and then challenge your thinking then you actually got to commit to action and here we come back to our if then plans which is I mean just a simple tactical way of radically increasing the likelihood of action we know it's 200 to 400 percent more likely expand your perspective challenge your thinking commit to action Jamie what's you know what do you see as you see this fresh a couple of months later, what are your perspectives?
2: Yeah, so just a couple of quick things. One on the challenger thinking. I think one thing in school, they help develop the fixed mindset. So that's a problem. So if we want growth mindset, we need to not attach our identity, our status and our money to the frame we're operating, but rather attach those things to our ability to learn and to shift our frames. Because if we do it that way, then lifelong learning becomes the cool thing to do, not to be stuck in your frame and hang on to it. And then in terms of committing to action, it's action, yes, but everything we do and everything we don't do already makes a difference. So we're acting all the time. So it's committing to intentional, to be intentional about the actions we take and then read the feedback to see how close or far we are from our intention and then take responsibility for that and self-correct. So it's a whole feedback loop that we're asking people to do is to take responsibility for the difference you make because they're already acting. And so Mm -hmm. the idea is really to be intentional about what they're doing. And is it getting us the results that we want for future generations or even for our own company?
3: I mean, it reminds me a bit of the big movement of thinking that happened in the DEI space the last couple of years that, you know, if, you, if you're not actively addressing and systemic issues of inequity and racism, you're perpetuating them. You've got to actually be anti-racist, I think was the concept. So these depletive systems are everywhere and you're either supporting and enabling those depletive systems or you're being some type of change. And I think the difficult thing is getting people to see that even a small step that they make is valuable because I think people get into the mindset of like, it's hopeless. What can I do? Or or, or science might save this and fix it. I don't really need to do anything.
2: And that's where storytelling comes in handy. You, I think, have taught me that you can't just unwire, but you can rewire to something better. Mm. So if you have the bummer mental model where things are just the way they are and there's nothing we can do about it, the opposite or the antidote to that is it's possible. Best Mm. strategy to get somebody from it's not possible to it is possible, storytelling. Very friendly, very non-threatening. Because if you tell somebody three stories of where it's already happening, it creates that cognitive dissonance and they they can't be both.
3: Yeah, I kind of picture, I was having an image in the last minute of like a thousand stories of small changes, like a thousand small changes, right? Of a thousand different people who are doing something in their power that actually has a really positive effect
2: yeah, huge effects, small changes know, for the greatest effect.
3: Yeah, a thousand small changes and, and be able to see those stories, you know, be able to see them by category and see those stories. So we can really yes, kind of please. see the stories and get engaged and involved in those. Because, you know, the way positive change happens is we tend to see it as opposed to, you know, be talked into it. Ryan, what do you want to talk What do you want to say there?
1: I just wanted to talk a little bit more about commit to action. I think we could give, you know, an entire solution based on really how to do that how to do that properly. There's so much there. Like the if-then plan, you know, is such an incredibly useful tool. And I think it comes off at first glance as this sort of, you know, fair enough, easy to use, let's do it. But there's so much complexity there. You know, we talk about what situations in our environment, what ifs result in what thens, but, you know, that's not just behavior, that's emotional responses, right? That's mentality. If we talk, if we go back to a growth mindset for a bit, you know, you might want to, to learn from others, for example, as a a key useful target. But at first, you might need to, when you acknowledge that someone else is, is really good at something, you might need to have an if then plan to kind of break down envy and turn it into admiration that you can learn from, right? So you might need to switch your mindset before you even switch your behavior. And you can use if then plans to do that. And that's why I love this graphic, how they're all connected, because you know, the if-then plans can help you to expand your perspective, can help right. you to change your thinking exactly. and you act as well. I mean, I think that's critical.
3: Yeah. Yeah, no, fantastic. So the hypothesis we have is that there is a way to shift people to more, more regenerative practices. And part of it, obviously, is the amazing work Jamie's doing with over 200,000 teachers. And please keep doing that. We hope your organization is regenerative and that you can continue to do that for your organization can continue to do that for 100 years, we hope. But I also think that, you know, doing this in organizations as well with the people who make the decisions is just coming at it from the other side. There is an opportunity with the pressure coming upward, particularly with the kind of the great transitions that are happening, you know, people leaving companies for all sorts of reasons and the ESG pressure coming down. I think there's a real opportunity right now to kind of get organizations on board with this. Probably, It's probably a more ripe environment than ever before. And we'll see what happens this year if that goes kind of one way or another. But I think we have a good opportunity this year. One thing that we're doing, just to say, but before we get into the questions, at NLI, we've developed uh, what we call a research briefing on this question on regenerative practices. And we're delivering those to executive teams who want to understand like, the right and wrong ways to, to go about that. So if you're from an organization interested in a briefing, just put regenerative briefing in the chat. Someone will follow up with you in the next little while. Just put regenerative briefing we can come in and and brief your leaders on those practices. Let's go back to you, Ryan and Jamie. Any questions that you want to address? Oh,
2: how to reveal the schemas that we're working from. Curious how to address those inherent biases. That's a great one. So we've spent quite a lot of time actually unpacking mental models and schema that people use to drive their behavior. Sometimes we name them, we give them icons, and then we want to learn to recognize them in ourselves and others. And so you can start to ask yourself, well, what do people say? What are the kinds of things people say when they have that kind of mental model or that kind? And it's a lot of fun. And then you can just start naming them. Ah, that's the Titanic. It's an assumption of scarcity or that's the bummer. You know, it's not possible or I have to maximize gains for myself without realizing that self is nested inside the community and so forth. So you can, Begin to, there's lots of literature out there on the ones that we've discovered already, but I would name them and then identify the opposites and then use those brain-based strategies to figure out how to help people literally open their minds so they can see things that they couldn't see from the limited schema they were operating with.
3: Jamie, what are the most common ones? I know that you've run a thing called the fish game for a long, long time, which kind of gives people a chance to yeah. interact with the system. What are the most common yeah, mental it's amazing.
2: Crazy. Amazing. 27 years, I get exactly the same mental models of unsustainability. Exactly the same. So the Titanic is one of them. So it's an assumption of, scar- we call it an assumption of scarcity. You know, if you're on the Titanic, you might as well go first class. That's why we call it that. So people will hoard or take more than their share, or they are unable to think because they assume that there's not enough to go around. So they get while the getting's good. Another big one is that bummer. The kids call the people with the bummer, the given ups. There's one that that they don't think they have, but it's the anthropocentric, if you will. I know it's a lot of syllables, but they're very people oriented. And so in the fish game, we give people the carrying capacity and the replenishment rate, and they have all the data they need from nature to make it work. And they don't pay any attention to it. They just look at for what is he going to do? What's she going to do? they don't, nature is not even on their radar. So that's a big one.
3: Yeah. Interesting. I know we're going to wrap up in a minute. Ryan, any closing comments as you see this framework or what's coming up for you as you, you know, as a scientist and researcher, how optimistic you are, are you that we can teach this to people and that we can make a difference to millions of people?
1: I'm incredibly optimistic. I mean, I think it's exactly the right time. You know, people are are ready for, I think this sort of framework. I I think they're open to it. And I think building on the work Jamie's been doing for, for such a long time as well and having great success too. When you're hit with such a catastrophe as, we, as we've been in recently, like I think people are looking for some right. serious change that will actually make things better and, and right. we'll do our best to make that happen.
3: Yeah, yeah thanks. A that
2: regenerative is- principle is that disturbances create the next cycle of life.
3: Mm. No, that's nice. And I think, you know, we've been talking for the last two summits about when a lot of change is going on, that's the time to do other big things. And so people are kind of open to big things right now. Jamie, thanks so much for being a guest today, continuing this conversation. We look forward to continuing the collaboration and dialogue. And Ryan, thanks for your great insights and your hard work in the research team that I know we've been uh, we've been growing lately as well. We've been getting back to expanding our research team and, and hiring more broadly. So Jamie and Ryan, feel free to jump off. I'm going to jump off. Thanks very much, everyone, for being here. Please take care of yourselves. Look after each other. Keep doing what matters. Back to you, Shelby. Bye-bye.
0: Yeah, wonderful. Thank you so much for today's discussion. It was super insightful. We're also hiring. If you're interested in joining our team and working with us, visit Neuroleadership.com careers to learn more about our open positions. And Summit 2023, as always, we're just going to keep reminding you, make sure that you have that on your radar. We're working. We're really excited for what's coming. And this is officially where we say farewell. So thank you so much for joining us today. We'll be back here same time next week and have a wonderful weekend end. Your Brain at Work Live is produced by the Neuroleadership Institute. You can help us make organizations more human by rating, reviewing, and subscribing wherever you listen to your podcast. Our producers are Matt Holodak, Mary Kelly, and me, Shelby Wilburn. Original music is by Grant Zubritsky, and logo design is by Ketchware. Thanks for joining us, and we'll see you next week.